Welcome to the Fustel Fit Podcast with your host, Nicola Fustel. Straight talking, body positive coach and personal trainer. Nicola brings you your weekly guide to finding real health and fitness and to live the life you deserve. Hi and welcome to the show. This is episode 26 of the Fustel Fit Podcast and live radio show on 91.8 Hayes FM local radio. Today, my guest was Amari from the Body Dysmorphia Disorder Foundation, otherwise known as BDD. I'd heard him speak on BBC Radio, and because it's a subject that's close to my heart, I really wanted to hear more. I was excited to listen to it, hear his story, and I also started following him on Instagram, where I saw he was sharing all of these pictures, um, which we'll speak about later, where he was starting to overcome his BDD by doing these pictures and also helping others to do the same. Now, it was a while ago that I thought that BDD was just what I had, a disordered body image, and I had no idea that other people were suffering from different versions of it. And when I heard Amari speak on the radio, I just wanted to get him on the show. So if you've ever suffered with a mental health disorder, you will know how debilitating it can be and also how stigmatised and shamed it still is to this day. People think you can just shake it off or pull yourself together, and you really can't. So to start the show, I ask Amari to share his story how he developed body dysmorphia and how he got to where he is today. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm 29 and I'm a private tutor. I teach English, math and Spanish and I'm the director of Move to Learn, which is a company delivering a change in education for young people, which essentially sees young people as, as great right now. And it's about delivering an opportunity for them to discover a sense of themselves and leadership, self-expression and contribution and helping each other out and really about creating the next generation. So that's kind of what I do and that's really important to me. And, you know, part of um, raising awareness of body dysmorphia for me is about um, generally raising awareness of kind of well-being and mental health and kind of changing the conversations there. And so for me, in terms of body dysmorphia, um, my first experience of it was when I was 16, or actually probably just about 15, just about to turn 16. So I, um, for my 16th birthday, my dad had got me a, um, a photo shoot. He'd surprised me with a photo shoot. And because funnily enough, I had um, kind of vague desires to, to, to do some modeling. And uh, it was the fact that I had those, that photo shoot kind of looming, and that's how it felt that suddenly sent me into this spiral, which um, it came out of nowhere for me. I had never had um, sort of thoughts that I would put down to body dysmorphia or anything close to that before. Mm-hmm. And it all focused around my eyes. Um, I just suddenly started looking in the mirror and thought that my eyes were, were hideous. I thought that I had huge bags under my eyes. I thought that they looked weirdly shaped and sort of asymmetrical. And um, I thought that they looked really weak and watery and and yellow and evil looking and a whole host of things kind of just suddenly descended and we kind of right in that moment so this was all before you even had any of the pictures taken yeah this was at the thought of actually having the photos Mm -hmm. so kind of suddenly that put me in that sort of mind that kind of frame of mind right where i was like right you know checking yourself out in the mirror kind of going okay cool in a week's time i'm gonna have these photos and then suddenly this compulsion this anxiety came over me that I really needed to fix this 
So that whole week running up to the photographs, I spent trying to like meticulously plan my sleep, trying to think that I had to somehow deal with these bags and get more sleep. And, you know, I had no idea what I was going to do about all the other stuff that, you know, I felt like the weirdness of the shape and everything else. Mm-hmm. And the morning of the of the photo shoot itself was, you know, really terrible for me. Like, I just felt really tormented. I didn't know what to do. I locked myself in the in the bathroom, the family bathroom. And it was like one of those things of like, you know, you see it in the movies, the, the typical teenager hogging in the bathroom, you know, except for me, it wasn't that. It wasn't me just kind of wanting to preen myself. It was me feeling like I was kind of already from that early stage, like in prison. And mm-hmm. but I couldn't escape. And there was this nervousness that somebody would knock on the door and I would be found out because I really felt immediately that what I was doing was somehow shameful and secretive and dirty um you know and what I was actually doing was basically staring at myself getting myself worked up into a state um thinking you know I can't possibly appear in front of a camera looking like this I can't even leave the house let alone have photographs taken of me so is that the Uh, first time that you experienced that the leaving the house thing because you're saying this is the first time you'd ever realized you had anything wrong with you at all um so before that presumably you just got on with your life you left the house you had relationships with people and so on was that the first time you felt like you couldn't leave the house yeah exactly i mean it wasn't the first it's the first time that i felt this intensity it's not the first time i'd ever kind of thought, oh, I wish that was better or, oh, that's not quite right. Because, you know, that kind of comes with the territory, I think, of living in today's society and basic being a human being, right? (laughs) You know, maybe even more so that you kind of have certain things where you compare yourself to your peers and, you know, you wish that was a bit better. So, but it was totally on that, what I would kind of call normal scale. And definitely it never occurred to me that people would laugh at me or people would find me hideous or that anything I felt was a cause for not leaving the house. It would have been like, oh, you know, I might not, you know, I might not get the girlfriend or I might not, or the girl that I fancy might not fancy me. They might fancy this other person who has this thing, you know, has the nice hair or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, on that time at 16, it was really intense. And then I went and had the photographs. And then actually just to kind of say what I did in that moment, which was a real act of desperation, I sort of rifled through my mum's makeup bag. I kind of found that and was kind of desperately trying to find something that I could use to kind of cover up. And this is a real BDD kind of classic thing. It's called safety behaviours. So Mm -hmm. when you have body dysmorphia, you very quickly develop safety behaviours, which are a way of kind of managing your your fears. Um, And it can involve camouflaging so for me in that moment putting the makeup on under my eye you know sort of the under eye area was a way of trying to for me cover up the bags that I perceived um but of course and the idea is that you know you're trying to keep yourself safe from the humiliation and the the ridicule that you think will happen otherwise and then for other people it might be things like trying to wear their hair in a certain way to cover up a particular feature to hide it it could be wearing um, baggy clothes if they're worried about their body shape. Um, it could be wearing really tight clothes if they're worried about their body shape. Um, it's anything that you do, basically, to try and cover up the thing that you're conscious yeah. about. But with you and your eyes, was it just something that you could see or had other people ever said that there was anything wrong with your eyes? No, I literally can't remember any comment 
any negative comment about my appearance full stop, actually, um, let alone my eyes. Uh, it just, I don't, I really, to this day, and I've looked, you know, trust me, I've looked really hard at this and I haven't mm. been able to find where it came from yeah. specifically. Um, but it just kind of, it just hit me. And, but it was really powerfully like the eyes and nothing else, you know? Um, and when I then, and then the, and then the thing is, and this is the thing with BDD that you will seek evidence from anywhere. Um, and I, you know, and if you'd asked me a few years ago when I was really much worse and in the grips of it, I would have sworn to you that I had en endless amounts of evidence for the fact that my eyes did look the way that I thought they did. Um, and it began with that moment with the photo shoot because the week afterwards, and the photos came back and the first, you know, the, I was kind of hell bent on looking for any evidence that he was going to do anything to the eyes as he was touching up the photos in general. Mm -hmm. And of course, he sort of blended on Photoshop, Photoshop, he blended the area under the eyes and he did something, something else to the, to the eyes themselves. So that and confirmed that was your beliefs. That was, that was the first bit of, you know, imagine like kind of building building a sort of a house brick by brick mm -hmm. you know but of course that house that you're building really is a prison that you then lock yourself away in and that was the first brick that was laid in that moment seeing him do that and you know as I look back I'm sure my rational brain tells me I'm sure he touched up other things I'm sure he touched up things that weren't even my body at all like you know the color of the background but yeah. I can't remember because you were just focused on the one thing I was just focused on the one thing because I I you know, there was this weird sort of, you know, one thing that happens is often people with body dysmorphia end up self-harming. And of course, that's not exclusive to body, body dysmorphia at all. Mm -hmm. And obviously, the kind of reason that they do it is because there is such a deep sense of, of shame and self-loathing that you kind of feel that you need to sort of harm yourself or hurt yourself in some way. And, you know, I've never self-harmed and... But, you know, I really get that that kind of was a sabotage. You know, you were looking for, to confirm it because, you you know, you knew that you or I knew that I looked this way and I was going to prove it to myself. So how um, long did this go on for? And, and did you ever then add in other parts of yourself, your body or your face or anything to this body dysmorphia? No. So, I mean, in terms of going on, so that was at 16, right? Mm -hmm. Or just before 16. And then... You know, the intensity of the photo shoot ended and then to be honest, I went back to my normal life, which isn't very common in terms of in terms of the development or onset of BDD. Um, and then it wasn't until I was actually 18 and just about to go to university. But again, I had that pressure of wanting to be attractive and wanted to, you know, be, you know, I wanted to really control my public image. Right. Yeah. Um, and it came on again. And then from 18, kind of constantly, really, you know, even now. Um, you know, at 29, I still, you know, I still have my struggles with it, you know, even this morning, to be honest. So this, you know, after I speak with you, I'm actually going to do a different interview, which is going to be on camera. And okay. my morning this morning has been quite stressful. Um, so if this was I, um, a video interview, then not audio, would you feel stressed about it? Yeah, because there's a sense, again, there's that sense of wanting to control the way that I look. Yeah. And then it's a difficult one, right? Because I think, you know, some anybody listening to this might think, well, yeah, if I was 
if I knew that I was going for a particular interview, I'd also want to sort of, you know, I might make a bit more effort that morning, yeah. you know. And so it's kind of wanting to know or trying to find out, well, on the scale, what is normal? But I think for me, you know, it's it's the it's the stress that is involved with it. And it's the sense of if I don't do this, then something bad is going to happen. And I think that's the thought process, which lets you know that it's body dysmorphia, this sense of of a real kind of compulsion and yeah. not being able to let go. So, so it sounds like you've done a lot of research on body dysmorphia as well. Yeah. Can you explain yeah. if people are not even aware of what is body dysmorphia? Are you able to explain that for us? Yeah. So, I mean, from a, a clinical point of view, you know, the description would be it is a um, obsession or a fixation with an imagined or perceived flaw in the body. Yeah. And it's a very sorry, debilitating disorder where people will um, develop behaviours to protect themselves, like the safety behaviours I mentioned, mm -hmm. would often end up housebound, um, potentially self-harming, and convinced that they have, that they, yeah, convinced that they, that they look a certain way, but what they have is a distorted image of themselves, which other people won't recognise. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of kind of clinically, I tend to find from my own experience that it doesn't really kind of get at it often because it does feel too clinical. And I tend to say that, look, when you have body dysmorphia, your sensation of yourself really is that you are hideous and that you are a burden on society and that people would actually ask you to leave a restaurant if you were in it because wow. you would be scaring people, that you would be, you know, really a freak. And it's not even just it's not even just the way that it looks. For a lot of people, BDD comes along with a, a sort of sensation as well. So for the longest time, I've had, you know, even though I, I might not be looking in a mirror and seeing my eyes, my eyes will feel not right. And so it's kind of something that's always with me. Like my eyes will feel like they are, that they are abnormal somehow, that mm -hmm. they don't feel quite at ease or like they should. And does it help you to talk about it or can it sometimes bring it on and make you feel a little bit more anxious about it? I think now it does. It really helps me to talk about it because it helps it cut it down to size. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something that happens when you say it out loud because, of course, it is irrational, right? Yeah. So there's something that happens when you say it out loud and you don't just have it in your head that really helps you sort of stand back from it and kind of hear in the moment that you're saying it, that it doesn't quite add up. Yeah. yeah? And one thing that um, I was told, which I thought was really brilliant, and I apply, and it's like, you know, your mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Make sure you don't go there alone. Mm -hmm. And it's that kind of idea to like, you know, we spend so much time, again, not just people with body dysmorphia, but any of us kind of in our own heads, with our own thoughts. And it is that dangerous neighborhood. Yeah, and 100%. Exactly right. And so just by sort of saying it out loud, talking to somebody, it's just having that sense of, okay, somebody's got your back, somebody's there with you, you're not on your own. And so now, talking about it, and it is a process, um, because, you know, when I first started talking about it, of course, there were all those fears, because I built up for such a long time that that was the last thing I should ever, ever do, because then somebody might confirm it. And that's the fear, right? Mm. You say it, then they might go, oh, yeah, of course you do. You look like that. Yeah. 
and then that is like there's a there's a, there was a time when that just felt completely like I could not afford to have that happen. That was just no way I was going to let that even run that risk. But what I've discovered is that by by doing that, by having that thought process that it was too risky, what I was really doing was making the BDD stronger. And I was feeding this idea that it was really this terrible thing and that it was actually real. But, but I think it can I... become that self-fulfilling prophecy, can't it? And, it, and it's funny because when I first ever heard of body dysmorphia, I always thought it was about the body. And I've got my own history and um, personal experiences with body and um, like body image and eating disorders, that kind of thing. And I always just assumed that body dysmorphia is about the body. And it's only since coming on the groups and speaking to people like yourself, I've realized that it's so much wider than that. And when you're talking about your eyes there, it just reminds me when I was actually a child, I thought there was something wrong with my nose. And so when I told all the other children there was something wrong with my nose, they never thought there was to begin with. They then took that on as it's a belief it's something wrong with her that, you know, let's, let's pick on her for that. So I think in children as well, they can actually make it as a self-fulfilling prophecy by saying that there's something wrong with them. And then all the kids pick on that one thing and then use that against them. Mm. Yeah. No, that's really powerful. I, yeah, it's... God, I don't know about that. I mean, there's two things that you said there which are really important. And it is that, this idea of, you know, body dysmorphia, I think there's two things that, one, not enough people do know about it, which is, again, why I'm trying to raise awareness. But then what does happen when people have heard about it, they kind of, yeah, do have um, a limited notion of what it what it is and what it means. And I know, for instance, for me personally, my journey of kind of sharing and opening up about body dysmorphia did start by saying, look, you know, I'd say to a friend, I've got body dysmorphia. And I kind of hid around, the, hid behind the fact that I knew that they would hear the word body mm-hmm. and think that I was talking about my body, i.e. neck down. Yeah. And that's what people hear. And they would kind of look at my body and go, hey, there's nothing wrong with your body. And so it was kind of me sort of half doing it, being able to f- kind of skate under the radar still and avoid having to deal with the fact that, you know, for me, it's my eyes. Yeah. And then the other thing is that body dysmorphia is linked to eating disorders, anorexia, bulimia, which obviously is much more in the public eye and people know about. Yeah. But that's what people tend to think that they are sort of one and the same, which means that people won't know that body dysmorphia can really latch onto any part of your body whatsoever. And something that you wouldn't normally think that, so, you know, the things that that we get from the media and Photoshop images and those sorts of things, which people might think, oh, it's going to be connected to that. Well, not necessarily. You know, I've spoken to people who, who, for instance, a guy that I know who, you know, I've been talking to, his concern is that his arms are too long. And he just has a real sensation that he, his arms are like, unlike anybody else's. And they're way too long and... They're freakish and people are looking at him and thinking, my God, what's happened to your arms? Why are your arms so out of proportion? You know, and that sort of thing isn't going to come from, you know, uh, a magazine saying, oh, you know, do this five day plan and get this sort of, you know, the right length arms. Yeah. That sort of thing. It's not you can't create a direct link like that or somebody else who I know who who of a woman who's stressed about the hair on her body. Now, not again, not like having too much like 
hair on her legs or her arms or anything that would be like waxing or depilating or anything like that. She's concerned about, we all as human beings have these really fine hairs, they're called vellum, and they're there to actually control our body temperature. They're the really, really fine hairs that regardless of how hairy you are, we all have. And that's what she's stressed about. And so she picks them out from her neck one by one. Because for her, it is just an absolute obsession and she can't take it and she thinks it makes her dirty. So it really goes to real depth and... And it's, I think it's really important to kind of get that message out there that people understand that this is really, you know, a psychological condition and it is um, incredibly debilitating it and, and uh, people, and it can, it can manifest itself in all sorts of ways. How do people get it? Do we know, is there research behind it? Is it a genetic thing? Is it hormonal or is it like a chemical imbalance? Yeah, that's the thing, right? We still don't know. And the issue is there's still a real need for more research. And that's another reason why it's so important to sort of start getting out there, having conversations about body dysmorphia, because then there's awareness and then there will be an actual appetite and funding for more research that we can actually begin to answer these questions. What we do know, though, is that body dysmorphia was first diagnosed at the end of the uh, 19th century. So it's been recognized for a long time. And so that's another thing that, you know, Anybody who would connect it to sort of selfie culture and things like that, it's not. Now, that doesn't mean to say that, you know, again, the images that we're bombarded with in this kind of cult of celebrity and beauty doesn't add to the suffering and add to the anxiety. It does, but it's not the actual cause of it. And so what is life like living with body dysmorphia? What does it stop you from doing in your everyday life? Wow, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, and that's one that really gets to the heart of it. I mean, you know, I've used the word a couple of times that it can be really debilitating, really paralyzing. But look, if I speak from my own experience again, you know, like it has left me, not now, but in the past, it's left me suicidal. And it's left me, I was so unable to, to live with myself, to live with the, the way that I thought I looked. Um, that I wanted to take my own life. You know, I thought I couldn't cope. I thought I was too hideous, that it was never, ever going to change. Then other things on a day-to-day basis, there was a period where I was really running a risk of becoming housebound because the thought of going outside was just too stressful. Mm -hmm. I just produced so much anxiety. And I would get up in the morning and each day I would say, okay, no, today's the day I'm going to go outside. And then I would go and try and get ready and I would get stuck in the mirror. That's one of the other things about body dysmorphia, the obsession. You can end up stuck in the mirror for, you know, three, four, five hours. And so it really has a big impact on those who have it, you know, in terms of their ability to maintain a job, to look after their children if they have them, to be in a relationship. Um, there's so much social anxiety that comes with it. So people often find that they that they lose their friends because their friends, you know, just after a while, their friends kind of don't see them as reliable. They don't come out Mm -hmm. anymore. And of course, most of the time, they don't feel able to talk about why. And so their friends just think that, oh, they're just antisocial or whatever that might be. But do you think as well that it's so debilitating because 
it's something like your eyes or like your friend with the arm length. It's not something that people classically like have surgery for. Whereas if it was something with your body, you had a, an issue with your tummy, you had a bit of fat on your tummy that because there's so much surgery out there, you, you wouldn't feel so debilitated. You would just, your focus would then be on, right, I need to have surgery for that or I need to diet and I need to change my body. No, not really, actually, because that's a really, I mean, I'm really glad that you raised that topic because that's a really important one body dysmorphia and the desire for surgery. So I myself have gone to Harley Street and had a consultation and asked for them to, you know, to to do, I can't remember what the surgery is called, but basically to sort of remove remove fat underneath your, your eye, eyes to take away the bags or something like that. Yeah, that, that's the surgery that I, the procedure that I wanted. But it's a really dangerous thing because the, the most common, um, the most common complaints for body dysmorphia are nose, hair, skin, and I think jawline. Those are the top four. And so there are, there are um, for nose, for instance, rhinoplasty mm -hmm. is a very common one. And people with BDD do go for it. But the problem is that when you're going for surgery, of course, you're dealing with it as though it is actually a physical problem yeah. and not a psychological one. So it never works. And in fact, they often end up more tormented with the results of the surgery. Even if those, you know, to objectively to other people, they might think the surgery went well. But the person with body dysmorphia, they're, they're you know, they're hacking at the wrong roots. And the real root of the problem is psychological. Yes. And so surgery might, for a time being, there's like a placebo effect might work. But typically, it actually ends up being worse. Or what can happen is the BDD, the focus of it will just morph to something else. So it might have been their nose, and then suddenly they'll find it's something else. Yeah. And the fixation just stays. So surgery really, really isn't the answer. I have to say I felt quite fortunate sometimes that I haven't been loaded with money, and so I haven't been able to fix everything on my body because I just know that I'd be one of those people who would have something, and then I would want something else, and then I would want something else, and I would never be happy, especially if you do think that you are in control and that you can change things about yourself. Mm. And never really changing what's on the inside, like you said, it is a psychological issue. Exactly. So what can we do then to help people? Right, that's a great question. And I'd say that for everybody listening, the first thing to do is to really just inform and educate yourself. And the best place to do that is the BDD Foundation. And you can go on their website and that's bddfoundation.org. And there you can find two really great questionnaires, which... You can, if you're in a doubt and don't know whether you have BDD or not, you can take these questionnaires, it takes five, 10 minutes, and it will give you a good clue, a really good indication as to whether you even have body dysmorphia. And then from there, steps that you can take from seeking medication and treatment, how to um, get referrals from your GP, and also um, access to support groups um, from other people who experience BDD, who can share and can really support you and um, and understand you because that's one of the biggest things, right? Not feeling alone and knowing that other people share your experience and know what it's like. So that's yes, the first thing. I wonder thing. though with having friends because with eating disorders, there are communities out there, and I'm not gonna name any because I don't want anybody looking into them, but they are communities of people who are still disordered and they actually excel people's disorders more, if that makes sense, like, like a competition. You know, mm. rather than helping people it makes them worse no i know exactly what you mean i know exactly what you mean and we have to be really careful about the type of conversations that we're having 
And, you know, for me, it's about, you know, and my experience of the body dysmorphia um, groups, there's groups in person, but there's also online groups for those people who either can't travel or don't feel comfortable yet, um, you know, seeing people face to face. Mm-hmm. And that they really are spaces for positive conversation. And uh, for me, that's what it's about, talking about the things that work, talking about the things that, you know, have create positive change. So for me, for instance, talking about it like you asked me and sharing is something that has really made the difference. Even though it is scary at first, it really gets easier and easier and easier. And talking about other treatment options. And, but yeah, that's really important to kind of find a group where um, the focus is on positivity and not on negativity. And so you talked about treatment there, but what, what is the treatment available? How did you get help? So uh, the main treatment uh, recommended for body dysmorphia is cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. Mm -hmm. And you can go online and um, find a CBT practitioner um, by typing that into Google, or you can ask for a referral from your GP. And cognitive behavioral therapy basically works on the behaviors and it works on your thought processes. That's the cognitive bit and obviously the behavioral bit is working on the behaviors that you have. So again, things like these safety behaviors, things like the compulsive actions, the checking or mirror gazing, or a lot of people with BDD um, will find a couple of people that they've trusted and they will, but then they will constantly sort of seek reassurance and ask them sort of almost daily um, whether their feature looks okay. And cognitive behavioral therapy goes to work on those and basically the thoughts behind them that keep them going and basically allowing you freedom to to get free of those actions because that's really what kind of keeps you in the grip of it and that prison that I was talking about. So yeah. cognitive behavioral therapy is something that I did in 2012 and it really made a huge difference for me. So what happens after the therapy though? Is there certain things that you can do to keep yourself well and not and recognizing disordered thoughts? So I think that's something, if you do have therapy, that's something to really discuss with your therapist and come up with a plan, right? Because, um, you know, it will have, you will get a certain sort of uh, number of weeks, no doubt, from the NHS. And that's really important to make sure that once you are, that you have a support system around you and to really kind of lean on the, those you know, parents, partners, friends, and have them you know, support you. So for, for instance, to me, one of the ways of, one of the powerful things about sharing is that I know that I have people that I can talk to if I do start to get obsessive again. And I can, you know, have them reassure me, not about the way that I look, which is really important not to do that, but just reassure me that that I'm fine and that I've, you know, I've got this basically and that I can do it. Um, and it's really important to, fundamentally, more than anything, actually, the question that I ask myself all the time is um, if I didn't have BDD, what would I do in this situation? So that would come, you know, if I'm going to a lift, that's a really great example. And I'll go into a lift and there's obviously a mirror there typically, right? Yeah. And my instinct will be to to duck my head, look down straight away and not confront that mirror because I'll be like, I don't want to, I don't want to be, um, knocked off balance here because that's still my thought process that if I look in the mirror right now I'm going to see something horrible and it's going to ruin my mood and I've got to be on form 
and that whole thought process goes and it's almost instantaneous. But then I catch myself and I go, wait a second. If I didn't have BDD, what would I do here? And if the answer is that where I would look, then I do that. And it just means that I'm constantly sort of being conscious about it. Mm-hmm. You know, for instance, mindfulness is something that is really popular at the moment. And, you know, and I think rightly so. And it is about bringing some sort of mindfulness to it and just being aware of the actions that I'm taking and but also aware of the thoughts that are behind them. So if I don't, um, you know, if I decide that, oh, I don't really want to go out this evening, is that because I don't want to go out or is that because I'm feeling a bit so insecure and I don't, and I fear that people might start judging me? Yeah. Do you think that there is a, a place in your future where you are completely BDD free and you never have an issue with the mirrors or going out? Yeah, I really do. I really, really powerfully believe that. And I really feel that I'm on that journey mm-hmm. um, towards that right now. Because, um, I mean, you're doing amazing stuff already. I've seen your Instagram, you're having all these pictures. And I think I, I don't feel that I have BDD anymore, but to ask a stranger on, on the train to take a picture of me would be quite a nerve-wracking experience just speaking to a stranger. So you're going that step further and doing all of that. Can you talk to us about that that journey and how you got to there? Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, so I'm running a campaign at the moment. Um, it's called In the Face of BDD, and it's 365 days in which every day I am sharing with somebody new, um, and it's all sorts of people. So it's been people in my family, people, my friends, um, my clients, because I'm a private tutor, and um, also strangers, people in Tesco's, people on the train, like you say. and Every day I share with them, I tell them about BDD, um, have a conversation and try and raise awareness. And I tell them that for me personally, it's that I don't like my eyes. And then I invite them to take a photograph of me. And that photograph is what I call a no safety photograph, meaning no filters, mm-hmm. uh, one take. So absolutely whatever comes out the first go, blurry or bad lighting or whatever, I take that. And also no selfie. So the idea is that I hand over control to them rather than getting stuck in the obsessive loop of trying to control the way that I am, I portray myself to other people, right? Yeah. This is one of the dangers of, again, Instagram and Facebook, yeah. probably for anybody, but again, particularly for somebody with body dysmorphia. So why, and, why did you want to do this? So the reason for me came, um, so I started on in November, the end of November, and we had a only the second annual body dysmorphia uh, conference. We had it at SOAS in the University in London. And I'd been the year before, and it had been really, really powerful for me. And I'd taken my mum along, and it really helped us because we'd had huge struggles around around the BDD in the past, and me basically feeling like she didn't understand, um, which wasn't true, but just kind of, it kind of came from my own pain. Mm-hmm. And then but as the second conference came, I really realised that, I really wanted to do something that would help other people. And as I'd been helped, I'd gone to the support groups a few years ago and I just, it helped me so, so much. And I was doing better at this stage. And I realized that I'd just sort of taken what I needed and then basically disappeared and I was doing well. And I thought, actually, I really want to give back because there's still people in those same support groups who are still really struggling. 
and still need that support. So I was looking for a way to to put a positive message out there, just like you were saying that there is a danger that, you know, if you get um, people who are really in pain and struggling, that that would be what they focus on. But I really wanted to put a message out there that recovery is possible and that um, that we can be courageous and powerful. So that's how the campaign started. So I launched it at the conference itself on November the 26th. And the reason it be, for it being a year is so that it's going to be a year until the very next, the third conference, at which point I will close it and hopefully announce um, the results and hopefully have lots of other people who have joined me along the way, because that's that's my goal. My goal is to have other people um, who experience body dysmorphia um, have the courage to start um, taking photos and sharing their photos as well. Not necessarily for 365 days like me, <laughs> but you know, for seven days, 10 days, even five days, anything that kind of works for them. And, but so that they get the experience of, um, of breaking free from the shame, essentially, the shame cycle and discovering that they, that they are powerful and that they are courageous and that they can do this. I think it's really amazing that you're doing that. And, um, I'm just interested to know how, because obviously you've you've set your, the bar now to 365 days, and obviously the first day was probably the the most challenging for you, having done that, or or maybe the first time you saw a stranger and and told a stranger your story. But we all have our ups and downs with every day within a year anyway. How are you um, dealing with certain days that maybe your BDD is a little bit more, and you still have to go out there because you put the pressure on yourself now to do this every single day. I have, right? <laughs> I really, really have. Um, there's some days, you know, there was there's a slight kind of thing of when I went 365 days, you don't really confront how long 365 yeah. days is until you start trying to do something every day for 365 <laughs> days. And then you're suddenly like, wow, you know, because I'm on day, today will be day 88. And that feels like, it's like, my God, yeah. that's a lot. But I've still got, you know, more than what, like three times that much or something like that to go. Um, and yeah, so there are days that are more difficult than others. There are days where I really wish I didn't have to do it. Um, and what keeps me going is I think two things more than anything, um, or maybe three, but definitely the first thing that keeps me going is the reason that I'm doing this. And that is that I really get that I'm not just doing this for myself. I'm doing it out there for the community of people who struggle with BDD. And the reason that I've done it as a social media campaign isn't just because oh, that's the thing of the times, but because, you know, body dysmorphia doesn't obey borders, right? And so there's, we're lucky, there's opportunities to kind of find out about it, you know, in London or in the UK. But, you know, there's going to be people in all around the world who don't have access to, to a GP, don't have access to a national health service, don't have that same sort of information who are nonetheless still going to be hit by BDD. And, you know, the power is that, you know, with a potentially global campaign or with reach globally that they can find out and discover. And that's the thing because almost everybody I know, including myself, who now has a diagnosis for body dysmorphia, it wasn't because they spoke to a doctor and they told them it was because they stumbled across an article. Um, they found, they heard a radio interview like this. And that's how they found out. And they heard themselves. They heard somebody talking about their own experience. And they went, oh, my God. 
that's what I've been struggling with all this time. And I thought it was just me. And I thought it was real. And so it is so important to get the message out there. So this, the moment I start kind of either feeling I can't be bothered or so many times I've like come home and I've forgotten to do it. And I've like got into that, you know, that stage where you're like, OK, let's crack up the bottle of wine yeah. or the glass of wine. And you're <laughs> like, I'm relaxing now. And you're like, oh, no, I've forgotten to do the photo. And you're like, am I really going to drag myself out again? So sometimes it's even just that, let alone the days where I'm actually feeling really insecure. Like last night I was feeling like dog tired, dog tired. And because my issue is my eyes, right? Yeah. For me, that's not just that's not just feeling tired. That's feeling incredibly insecure. And, you know, for me, I'm much more stressed about looking tired than I ever am about feeling tired. But I had to take the photo and, you know, I um, shared with one of my students, actually, um, which is an extra kind of uh, an extra fear because, you know, they are that's kind of going into my professional life mm-hmm. and really having to confront the potential stigma over mental health, which is another thing that I'm really trying to break free from myself and then also start that conversation that we can, you know, that we don't stigmatize mental health and think that, OK, it's going to make me seem weak or unreliable if I talk about having mental health issues. Yeah. And then, yeah, the second reason that I do it is because every day, honestly, that I share, regardless of how I feel before, I discover something new. And, you know, and I write about every single day, I write um, about my experience. I write about um, some aspect of BDD. And again, going back to that being mindful, it gives me an opportunity to see my own progress. It gives me an opportunity every day to discover that regardless of what I've got going on, I can be powerful and that, you know, it allows me to feel really um, strong, you know. And one of the things that I say is that, you know, what I, the, one of the messages of, of doing this, um, you know, and I'll say this to any of the listeners, that there really is a difference between letting go of control and losing control. And so every day I let go of control by not controlling needing to look a certain way in order to take the photograph or needing to take the photograph myself. You know, I'm letting go of control. I'm handing it over, but I'm not losing control because I feel so much more grounded and centered knowing that I can do that and still be okay. And every day I do it and I go, Hey, nothing's happened. Nothing terrible's happened. No catastrophe, no disaster. I'm still here. And in fact, not only am I here, I'm standing tall and standing strong. Mm-hmm. So you're doing amazing work just on yourself really now. So it must be like therapy every day to walk 365 really days, feeling better and better about yourself and what you're doing and also how much you're helping other people. Yeah. No, and, then, and the next thing is I really want to start creating a community. Um, so the next thing for me is to create um, a space where we can all kind of share our stories. So anybody listening and who is interested in, starting to follow the campaign I should just say that it's the hashtag is hashtag in the face of BDD mm-hmm. and my Instagram is at Omazi so that's O-M-A-Z-I-E and I ask for people to share their stories with me either on the Instagram or they can email me at in the face of BDD at gmail.com and I really want to start sharing other people's stories because I really appreciate that my experience around my eyes and even just the way that 
you know, the way that I've coped with it is not the same as everybody's. And there's a whole wide picture of body dysmorphia and that that needs to be shared. And I really want us to support each other. So my next step is hopefully I'm going to create a, no, I will create a Facebook page where I'm going to try and get us all together and supporting each other and having conversations that will make the difference. Well, you've certainly inspired me and I've just been thinking I'm going to join you on your hashtag <laughs> and yeah. do, do a picture and, and tell my story as well. So, Oh, please, I would love that. <laughs> and um, is there anything else that you wanted to leave us with? Because I was going to ask for your Instagram and Facebook and everything which you've already given us. Is there anything that I've missed in terms of questions that you'd like to tell us about? I think the main thing for me is that, well, actually, here's one thing that I would like to say, which is something that I'm really aware of is that the people that you know since I've been doing the campaign people um, have written to me and I've been receiving personal messages people messages from friends who regardless of whether they have body dysmorphia or not um, you know have really been thankful for you know get, starting this conversation about body image and the ways in which we kind of hide the things that we're dealing with right mm -hmm. but then a lot of those private messages have been about Oh, Amari, you're so brave, you're so courageous, which, you know, I appreciate. But I want to say that, you know, I get that there's a sense in which it's like, wow. But then part of saying that I'm so brave is this thinking that, oh, but I could never do that. And I really want to let people know that I'm, I really am just an ordinary guy. <laughs> there's nothing special about me. And, um, and that's the last thing I'd ever want to put out there that I'm, you know, some sort of cape wearing hero because um, I'm not I'm just an ordinary guy who's um, you know trying to deal with my own stuff at the same time right mm -hmm. and so you know I want everybody to know that they that they can do this and and that the main thing more than anything is that yeah there's the there's the public facing campaign and the pictures and everything and it'd be great if you could do that because obviously that helps raise the profile and reach more people but more than anything is that I want people to find the freedom to start talking to the people in their lives that matter. So, yeah. you know, if they've got children that they've not been able to talk to, if they've got a partner that they've never managed to tell, and that's, you know, and that's getting in the way of their intimacy because they're living worried that their partner is going to someday wake up and leave them, which is what I've had for so many years, is to actually find the ability to share that and finally just drop that weight that they've been carrying. So that's more than anything. If I could leave you with that, that just to start sharing and knowing that you're okay, that would be the main thing. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave Nicola a review on iTunes. You can also check out the show notes and get other free content on her website, foostallfit.co.uk. If you'd like to contact Nicola, email nicola at fustillfit.co.uk